Welcome to another episode of the Emergency Docs. I'm Dr. Y. Today we're talking about inflammatory bowel disease, including ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease. And I'm Dr. R. Please keep in mind that this podcast is for the purposes of general education and should not constitute medical advice or replace the advice of a trained medical provider. So ulcerative colitis. We've all seen commercials for medications for ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease, but what are they? Ulcerative colitis, or UC, as we may refer to it in the next two episodes, is one of the inflammatory bowel disorders in the same family of diseases as Crohn's disease. We're going to focus on ulcerative colitis because our guest next week is a real ulcerative colitis patient who is going to discuss with us more about what it's like to live with the disease. This week, we'll focus on the medical aspects of the disease. It's important to note the distinction between inflammatory bowel disorders, or IBD, and irritable bowel syndrome, or IBS. Inflammatory bowel disorders are chronic, immune-mediated diseases which often require lifelong medications and immunosuppressant drugs. IBS, or irritable bowel syndrome, is commonly associated with anxiety and stress and can lead to intermittent diarrhea, constipation, upset stomach, nausea, among other symptoms, but is generally much less severe and does not require chronic medication use. Interestingly, ulcerative colitis is pretty rare in most of the world. It's most commonly diagnosed in Europe, the United Kingdom, and North America, but also found in Israel, Australia, and South Africa. It's increasingly prevalent in Japan, South Korea, Singapore, India, and Latin America, areas with previously low incidence. This could be related to many factors, including underdiagnosis or death before diagnosis, but may also relate to exposure to infectious disease early in life. Approximately 5 to 10% of patients with ulcerative colitis have family members with the disease and may have early onset disease, meaning they start to have symptoms before age 10. Most patients with ulcerative colitis will start to develop symptoms around ages 15 to 30. We don't fully understand who gets IBD and why, but the most commonly accepted hypothesis suggests that it's caused by a combination of factors. It's thought that a person first has to be genetically predisposed to have the disease, meaning they need to have certain genes in their DNA that make them more likely to have the disease in the first place. Next, it's thought that the composition of the normal gut microbiome matters, meaning that there are certain types of bacteria that when they colonize or live in your intestines, it makes you more likely to get IBD. What kind of bacteria live in your gut is dependent upon a whole bunch of factors like where in the world you live, if you have pets, if you live in a house, a hut, a tent, if you have exposure to wild animals, what sorts of diseases you've had in your life, if you've gotten antibiotics, what you eat, and many, many other factors. People who get antibiotics more often tend to have less diverse and less healthy gut bacteria, which is another reason your doctor may choose not to give you antibiotics. Besides genetics and your gut bacteria, there are a whole bunch of other factors that are thought to contribute to the development of IBD. These are known as endogenous host factors, like problems with the cells that line your intestines not forming a barrier well. Another factor is the patient's immune function, problems with the immune system, and problems with the cells lining the gut combined with problems with gut bacteria, in combination lead to the development of IBD, not to mention other environmental factors like smoking or pathogen exposure. It is usually the result of an overactive immune response, but it is unclear if there is a particular bacterium that incites this response. 
Yeah, inflammatory bowel disease like Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis basically boil down to uncontrolled inflammation and an immune response that isn't dampened appropriately. Some studies suggest that knocking out or basically deleting specific inflammatory or immunosuppressant proteins can lead to the development or resolution of IBD, but most of these models, again, require the loss or gain of function of the protein and the right bacterial mix in the intestines. Some studies also suggest that exposure to certain types of organisms like bacteria can trigger the amplified immune response, but these studies are observational. It is also important to note that psychosocial factors and stress may have a hand in further development of the disease. Life events like death in the family, divorce, interpersonal conflict, or major loss might cause a greater stress response, so that can lead to some of these inflammatory responses we discussed earlier. Okay, so what is ulcerative colitis? It's a problem with the mucosal lining of the gut, usually starting from the rectum and extending inward or proximally in doctor terms to the rest of the colon. Most patients have disease that's limited to the rectum and rectosigmoid areas, but about 20% of patients have total colitis, meaning involvement of the whole colon. With ulcerative colitis, there's a continuous spread of the disease through the rectum and colon. That's important because with Crohn's disease, you can see some parts of the intestine that are involved and some that aren't. With ulcerative colitis, it's more of a continuous extension of the disease without skip areas, as they're known. The damage to the mucosal lining can be mild, appearing kind of like sandpaper to severe where you can see areas of hemorrhage or bleeding and edema or swelling. True to its name, ulcerative colitis can cause ulcers in the lining of the intestines. In some cases, Patients may also develop inflammatory pseudopolyps or growths at sites of healing. To differentiate from ulcerative colitis, Crohn's disease can affect a patient anywhere in the GI tract, from the mouth to the anus. With Crohn's disease, some people can have disease just in the small intestine, some people can have disease in both the small and the large intestine, and some people have disease only in the large intestine. You can have skip lesions or non-continuous sections of intestine affected by Crohn's disease. The rectum is often spared in Crohn's disease, whereas ulcerative colitis, the rectum is almost always affected. Crohn's disease may also affect the liver and the pancreas, though this is rare. In medicine, we refer to the ulcerations formed by Crohn's disease as cobblestone-like in appearance because the intestines will have little islands of unaffected mucosal tissue that are surrounded by these kinds of longitudinally and transversely fused ulcerations. You may also see pseudopolyps with Crohn's disease, as with ulcerative colitis. People with Crohn's disease are more likely to form fistulas or interconnections between bowel and other parts of their anatomy. This can lead to infections, strictures, and recurrent small bowel obstructions, all of which can be life-threatening. Okay, so now that we know a little bit about the pathophysiology, let's talk a little bit about what symptoms a patient might experience with IBD. The major symptoms include diarrhea, rectal bleeding, tenesmus, which is basically an intense urgency to poop, pooping mucus, or crampy abdominal pain. Sometimes the symptoms are mild and can last weeks to months before a patient seeks medical care. In other cases, the symptoms present suddenly and acutely, so the patient seeks care right away. We should note here that just because you have diarrhea or blood and or mucus when you poop does not necessarily mean you have inflammatory bowel disease like Crohn's or ulcerative colitis. There are many things that these symptoms can come from, including traveler's diarrhea to hemorrhoids to even COVID-19. Yeah, that's a really good and really important point. 
We want to educate you about different diseases, but please do not self-diagnose. WebMD can be really scary if you don't work with your personal physician to properly diagnose what your symptoms might mean. So back to the symptoms of ulcerative colitis. The diarrhea occurs because when your intestines are damaged or inflamed by the disease, they can't absorb nutrients or water properly. This leads to the stool passing rapidly through the intestines, which causes diarrhea. I'm going to get a load of crap for saying this, pun intended, but diarrhea is actually really interesting in how it affects food and nutrient absorption from its many different causes, but we'll save that for another episode specifically about diarrhea. Other symptoms a patient might experience are worsening of symptoms at night or after eating, as well as anorexia, nausea, vomiting, fever, and weight loss. If you go to your doctor or the ER for these symptoms, your doctor will probably do a basic abdominal examination, which tells us a little bit about how much pain you're experiencing, where the problem is located, and if we think you are having a surgical emergency like a bowel obstruction or perforation. The doctor will probably also do a rectal exam where the doctor will use a glove finger to examine the inside of the rectum for masses, fissures, bleeding, and other problems. Depending on what kind of setting you're in, such as the doctor's office versus the hospital or the emergency department, your doctor will probably order lab tests where your blood will be drawn to look for things like inflammatory markers, hemoglobin, hematocrit, platelets, white blood cell count, and others. These labs tell us a little bit about how much bleeding you're experiencing, if your body is compensating for the bleeding, if there are signs of blood disorders, signs of infection, or signs of inflammation. If you say you're having diarrhea, your doc will also probably order stool studies where you'll have to give a sample of your poop to the lab to test for infections. In the ER, we always say the best cure for diarrhea is ordering stool because once we order the test, the patient who says they're having diarrhea every 30 minutes can't go in the six hours they're in the department. <laughs> yes, that's true. Of all the stool studies I've ordered, and I order a lot more than average probably, I think I've gotten maybe two or three real samples during an ER visit. In these cases, if we're sending you home, we'll send you home with a kit to collect your stool. Or if the ER doesn't have the kits, we'll likely have you follow up with your medical provider to get the kit and do the testing through your primary doctor. If you have a lot of tenderness or pain in the abdomen, we'll probably also order a CT scan in the ER, but this really dependent on each individual patient case. If you see your primary doctor or a gastroenterologist or a GI specialist, they may order a barium enera or do a colonoscopy, but we would never order this in the emergency department unless you are being admitted and a consultant wants the test. These tests are only done by GI specialists. To compare ulcerative colitis to Crohn's disease, the symptoms are fairly similar. However, as we mentioned previously with Crohn's disease, any part of the GI tract can be affected, so the symptoms a patient experiences are dependent upon where the disease is. Some symptoms include abdominal pain, right lower quadrant pain, fever, improvement of symptoms after having a bowel movement, bowel obstruction, vitamin deficiencies, nausea, vomiting, upper abdominal pain, or gastritis. As we mentioned before, Crohn's disease patients form fistulas or tunnels between the GI tract and other body organs. Sometimes the fistula just forms between different segments of bowel, but sometimes these tracts can form between the GI tract and the skin, the GI tract and the vagina, or the GI tract and the bladder. Symptoms of these could include fecal matter in the urine or vagina, or recurrent urinary tract infections. Labs for Crohn's disease are pretty much the same as ulcerative colitis, at least from an emergency medicine position. Your specialist will also have more specialized labs. 
You may be admitted or referred for endoscopy or colonoscopy where a GI specialist will use a camera to view from your mouth to your stomach or from your anus through the intestine. They might also do a capsule endoscopy where you swallow a pill-sized camera to visualize the parts of the intestine the bigger cameras can't reach. These tests are where your doctor might see that cobblestone-like appearance we discussed earlier in the context of Crohn's disease. For both diseases, there are some antibody tests that can be done to help determine the type of disease a patient has, but these are generally not ordered by emergency medicine providers. Besides the symptoms actually affecting the GI tract, patients may also experience symptoms outside of the GI system, including skin rashes, arthritis, eye problems, fatty liver, primary sclerosing cholangitis, kidney stones, low bone mass, increased blood clotting, just to name a few. But there is hope. For patients with these diseases, the types of treatments that are used depend on the specific types of diseases as well as how severe the disease is. Patient preference will also play a large part in these treatments. Some people do okay with no treatment at all. Others will be on medication for their entire life. The first treatment for mild to moderate disease is sulfasalazine, or 5-ASA as it's more commonly known. This medication is a bit more effective for maintaining remission of ulcerative colitis than Crohn's disease. 5-ASA is more effective at higher doses, but with higher doses come more side effects like headache, anorexia, allergic reactions, nausea, and vomiting. So again, for many patients, there's trial and error regarding what's tolerable and what isn't. Glucocorticoids, or steroids, are another mainstay of treatment. These are usually started if the disease is not responsive to 5-ASA and if a patient is having an active flare. It should be noted that glucocorticoids should not be used for maintenance therapy, but primarily to induce remission. This is because there are a lot of negative side effects associated with steroids, like fluid retention, fat redistribution, stretch mark-like changes to the abdomen, high blood sugar, cataracts, osteoporosis, emotional problems, and even withdrawal. Azathioprine and 6-mercaptopurine can be used for glucocorticoid-dependent disease basically for those patients who relapse as soon as they go off steroids. Methotrexate can also be used for this reason, but has some toxicities as well, including low white blood cell counts and fibrosis of the liver. For more severe disease, cyclosporin can be used, particularly in those patients whose disease isn't well controlled by steroids. This may be used as a last resort before doing a colectomy where the diseased part of the colon is removed. Cyclosporin unfortunately has many toxic effects, including kidney problems, high blood pressure, problems with the gums, numbness, tingling, tremors, headaches, and electrolyte abnormalities. Because this drug is an immunosuppressant, patients are also at more risk for infections. Tacrolimus is another drug similar that is 100 times more potent than cyclosporin. Other options for severe disease include biologic therapies. These are usually given to patients who have failed other therapies. These therapies are antibodies made to various inflammatory factors that help reduce inflammation and therefore disease. Nutrition can also make a difference. In some cases, remission can be induced by bowel rest, meaning not eating, but the patient would need to receive nutrition through the IV to make sure they don't starve. Having a specialized diet can sometimes help, but most of these diets aren't very palatable, meaning they taste bad. Dietary changes don't work as well for ulcerative colitis as they do for Crohn's disease. As a last effort to control disease, surgery can be utilized. Nearly half of patients with chronic severe ulcerative colitis have surgery in the first 10 years after they're diagnosed with ulcerative colitis. Basically, these surgeries remove the diseased part of the colon and then reattach the intestine to the anus. 
However, as I'm sure you can imagine, this causes problems as well. After having surgery, patients can lose the ability to control their bowel movements well, have bowel obstructions, infections, or can have recurrence of disease even after surgery. That said, if the surgery goes well, as it does for most patients, they can have complete remission of disease. Crohn's disease patients will also likely require surgery. For patients with disease in the small intestine, 80% of patients will require at least one surgery. These surgeries are less curative than for ulcerative colitis, so the smallest portion of the intestine as possible is removed. Surgery is really only used for Crohn's disease when absolutely necessary, usually due to obstructions or fistulas or abscesses forming. Finally, even without immunosuppressive treatments, patients with IBD are at increased risk for developing gastrointestinal cancers compared to the general population. The longer the patient has disease and the more severe the disease is, the greater the risk. One study suggested the rate of cancer is about 10.8% after 40 years of disease. The good news is IBD patients are more likely to have their cancer detected early because it will usually be found on their annual or biennial colonoscopy. Okay, so we know that was a lot, but there is a reason we wanted to discuss IBD in this much detail this week. We have a pretty incredible guest joining us next week. We have a guest who is an actual ulcerative colitis patient and will be discussing her triumphs and difficulties with the disease. We should also note that this guest, Ms. Annika Miller, was an NCAA ski champion and is an all-around amazing human being. We wanted to give you an introduction to the disease this week so that next week's episode will make a bit more sense. We have tons of questions to ask Annika, so we want to make sure you have a good background on what we'll be discussing. That's it for this episode. Thanks for listening, as always. Feel free to reach out to us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, or our website at theemergencydocs.com. Also, if you like what you hear, please feel free to support us through the links on our website. See you next week.